Well, uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Steve, for that nice introduction, and uh, good morning, and uh, Happy New Year to all of you. It's a great privilege for me to, to be with you today. Uh, I commend you for choosing to be in services this morning, and I commend those of you that are choosing to watch online and uh, to start your new year by paying attention to God's Word, and I think that pleases the Lord, and I think it's a decision that should help bear good fruit in your life and your ministry. I'm thankful for the opportunity of being back at Bethel and uh, want to not just greet the folks here, but also your uh, branch at Cedar Lake and also the HP uh, congregation. Well, as Steve mentioned, this is the first Sunday of your family month, and this year it's being called Family Matters Back to Basics. Now that's a wonderful tradition. And I can still remember when Cindy and I attended our first family month. It was just months after we were married and we had moved to Winona Lake, Indiana where I was attending Grace Theological Seminary. And uh, we uh, began attending the Black Hawk Baptist Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, pastored by a young man named David Jeremiah who was in his first senior pastorate. And a few months after we arrived, uh, the church had their first family month. And as a young married man and a young married couple, we were so eager to get off to a good start. And yet just even in the early months of our marriage, we began facing some of the challenges that are inevitable when two sinners saved by grace start living together and making the adjustments of moving and Uh, I'm in graduate school and she's working as a teacher at a place 45 miles away from where we were living and we're driving 45 miles one way to church and life was very, very busy. And so we approached uh, sitting in the pew listening to our first family month with earnestness and I still remember 50 years later the way one of the speakers started his message. He said, the greatest joys you will have in your life are probably going to be related to your family. The greatest heartaches you're going to experience in life will probably be related to your family. You would be wise to pay attention to what the Bible says about the family. Those three sentences have been seared into my conscience and in my thinking and helped motivate me in my own study of the scriptures. So I want to encourage you to come faithfully and participate in all of the services during family month and be praying that God will help not just the speaker, but praying that God would open your heart and that you'd be open and responsive to how God would want to teach you and help mold you and to help bring answers and solutions and greater joy to your own family. Now, I was given the topic by Pastor Steve to address the subject, what is a family? And as I prepared, I found my heart being burdened for four groups of people. First of all, I'm burdened for the uninformed. It wouldn't surprise me if many of you are here and you're not accustomed to attending church regularly, but you're starting a new year and your family relationships aren't what they should have been. And 2021 was a rough year in many ways for all of us. And for many people, it was a really rough year in their family. 
And you're wanting to start the new year with a, a sense maybe of seeking God's blessing. But in reality, you know very little about what the Bible says about the family and the family responsibilities. And I'm hoping you'll be helped today. I'm also thinking about and hoping to minister to those of you that I would call the disillusioned. And that is that your hope, your family experience has been marked by pain and maybe betrayal and mistreatment, maybe even abuse. And worse, uh, you, you don't even know anybody or maybe very few people up close who seem to be happy in their family. And you're disillusioned, but you keep thinking that there's got to be answers. The third group that I trust to minister to are what I would call the discouraged. That would be some of you who know a lot about what the Bible teaches about the Bible and you, about the family, excuse me, and about family relationships, and you've tried to live out what you know, but the, the teaching has somehow just hasn't worked out in your life the way you had hoped. And um, things maybe are strained at your home right now, and strange relationships are strange with your parents or your siblings or your spouse or your children, and you long for a work of God in your family in this new year. The fourth group that I hope will be helped by this message are what I want to call the hopeful. This might be those of you who've never been married, but maybe inspire to maybe be married in the future or married again and want things to be different. And you're looking to the future and you're wanting to be optimistic and you're wanting to do things God's way, but you're just not sure what they are. Well, I hope with each of these four that you'll find answers from God's word this morning. A passage of scripture that has touched me this week as I have been preparing is Psalm 119, verse 18. And I want to encourage all of us to make this our prayer. Psalm 119, 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Would you pray that with me? Let's bow together. Fathers, we come now to the preaching and teaching of your word. I pray that you would help each of us to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from thy law. Father, help me to preach and teach your word in a way that's clear, that's genuinely helpful. We bring honor and glory to Christ and would strengthen families for your honor and glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, the question we might want to start with is, what is a family? And <clears throat> that question has, could be answered in a whole lot of different ways, has been answered in different ways over the years. It's interesting, Webster's Dictionary in 1913 stated this way in defining the term family. It said, it, it is the group comprising a husband and wife and their dependent children constituting a fundamental unit in the organization of society. Well, since then, there's been a lot of various definitions on the family. And today, the term family has been broadened in the way it is used. And it's used very broadly, oftentimes refer to my best friends or my family, or they're special neighbors, they're like family to us or it may be a, a particular sports team or something that, you know, during that year we were just like family together. 
Uh, maybe if your, your small group from the, the church that you meet with regularly, and you'd say, you know, in many ways, we're just like family when we get together. And oftentimes it just connotes that there's a warm, loving, caring relationship. Well, the term today refers to a small group who cares for one another and has meaningful relationship. And there's also an, an active group, an active number of people today who would want to completely redefine the term family and move it away from the concepts that are described in the scripture. Well, if we're going to be wise, as Psalm 19 pointed out, and apply God's word to our lives, we've got to come back to the scriptures. So grab your Bible, please, and let's start with where the first family started and turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let's talk about the family formed. The family formed. Genesis 1 Verses 26 and 27. This scripture says, And God um, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Excuse me, let me back up to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to the likeness, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When the scripture says that God created a man in his own image, it's typically understood by Bible scholars that man was created like God to have intellect, emotion, and will, which makes us different from all the other parts of creation. So Genesis chapter 1 records the creation, and you jump down to verse 31, and it says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and morning the sixth day. So <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1 is the, the, is the large view, the helicopter view, the summary of creation. If you turn then to chapter 2, we get more of a down-on-the-ground, closer-up look at the creation, particularly of man and woman. So look with me now at Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 18. And we're answering the question, what is a family? And we're looking at what the Bible records was the beginning of the first family. So Genesis 2, 18 says this, <clears throat> And the Lord God said... It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." 
Now, as we review that passage, you'll notice that the repeated refrain is, there was not found a companion suitable for Adam. In other words, Adam was in a state where he had untested holiness, he's in a perfect environment, and yet there he was incomplete. And so the scripture says that God created, created, uh, created Eve. And you'll notice that the, the scripture is very clear. God said, the scripture says that God performed the first major surgery, put Adam to sleep, took his rib and some of the flesh, and from that God formed Eve. And as we think about the family, we ought to take note of the fact that God did not take something from Adam's head to indicate that Eve is to be above him. God didn't take something from Adam's feet to indicate that she's to be below him. But we're seeing the, design, the forming of the first family, that part of the goal is companionship. God takes something from Adam's rib, from his side, so that she would be a companion to him. Somebody his equal and his companion going through life. Then look at verses 24 and 25. And if these verses are not underlined in your Bible, I'd certainly encourage you to, to do that. Verse 24 says, and for this cause, for what cause? For the cause of defeating loneliness, for the cause of companionship. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, those are very, very important verses as we think about the family and about family relationships. You'll notice that God said, for this cause, for the cause of defeating loneliness, a man shall leave his father and mother. And you'll notice that there's three verbs that are used there. And these are significant in understanding how God wants your family to function, particularly in your marriage. He says, first of all, there is to be a leaving now, verses 24 and 25 are some of the most frequently quoted scripture passages in the New Testament. And so this is the, the model that God is giving us. And so he says there's to be a leaving. And after Genesis 1 and the way it's repeated in the New Testament and so forth, what the leaving means is that when a, a man and a woman come together to form a marriage, to form a new family, that there is to be a leaving. And the, the point of the passage is, the point of leaving is that the marriage is to be a priority. That's what leaving means. In fact, in the counseling room, something that, that I frequently teach people is what I would call the TPT principle. T, temporary relationships. P, permanent relationships. T, temporary relationships. So think of it this way, when it comes to leaving in your marriage, there needs to be a, a leaving, but you've got to keep in mind this TPT principle, meaning that there's temporary relationships that you're going to leave, the past that you're going to leave. Uh, this um, past June, uh, Cindy and I had the privilege of celebrating our 50th uh, wedding anniversary. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that had to happen for us back in 1971, uh, for you young people, that's right after we got back from the Civil War. And uh, uh, <clears throat> there had to be a leaving 
I'd grown up in southeastern Ohio in a very, very rural area. Uh, she had grown up in Chicago, very, very suburban area. And these two very different people who had met at Cedarville University in Ohio had to come together and there need to be a leaving in order to form this permanent relationship. And God has blessed our family, our marriage with two children, uh, Jim and Becky, and they grew and somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22, they basically left our, our home and established their home, certainly uh, when they were married at about the age of 22, 23. And so there was a temporary relationships that led to a permanent relationship that led to temporary relationships. And what I want you to see is that part of the way that God is, wants marriages and families to be established is that there is to be a proper leaving. And I will say to you, as a, as a man who's done a few thousand, uh, conducted a few thousand counseling sessions and the large majority of them being on husband-wife relationships, one of the most common struggles I see in marriages is where there is a failure to properly leave and give proper attention and focus to the permanent relationship. And the temptation is to, uh, to sacrifice the permanent on the altars of the temporary. In other words, there can be a, an excessive clinging to the way I was raised and the way we did it and, and I'm Irish and this is the way we do it or I'm German or I'm put whatever word you want in there. This is the way we observe Christmas or this is the way we celebrate uh, holidays or something and to cling to those so strongly that there's not a proper leaving. Or it's possible that the permanent can be sacrificed on the altar of undue attention to the children. Children are important, but that relationship is temporary. I mean, you'll always be their parent, but you're not always in charge of them. You're not always responsible for them. And today, there's way too many people who are sacrificing the permanent on the altars of the temper. There's to be a leaving. But notice also, he says that there's to be a cleaving. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Now, you understand, don't you, that the word cleave is different than the word cleaver. All right? Uh, the word cleave has the idea of a commitment, a sticking. All right? So there's to be a leaving, but then there's to be a cleaving, a commitment to one another. And Jesus in Matthew uh, 19 verse 5 added to what is said in Genesis 2, 24 and 25 when he said that marriage is to be permanent. God's intention is that when you enter into a marriage relationship, you establish a new family, that that is to be until death parts you. I want to say to you that the strongest glue in family relationships is not love. Love can come and go, love can be strong, love can be weak or love at times can seem to be absent. The strongest glue in a family relationship is a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to obeying his word and to being the kind of person who is committed to him. I mentioned a moment ago that Cindy and I have celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary this summer. And uh, I would say that over the 50 years, we have had some very high highs, some very, very happy times. 
We've also had some very low lows. We've had some really hard times. And there were hard times where uh, I didn't know what to do, even though I was advising other people what to do in their marriages, and we had to seek, we, we chose to seek biblical counseling. Have somebody else speak into our relationship to help us. And if Cindy were here, she would agree with me that what has kept us together for 50 years is not the wonderful personality that we married. It's not the other things of life. What has kept us together foremost is our love for Jesus Christ, which has helped us foster an attitude of love and acceptance for one another. I just want to say to you that God intends for marriages to be marked by a commitment. I'm also pleased to be able to tell you that Part of what encouraged me in this regard was the fact that my parents were married for 69 years. That's almost unheard of in our culture. Today, I mean, even in recent weeks, we've had reports of a U.S. congressman getting married after, getting divorced after being married nine weeks. And in our culture, it's not uncommon to hear about people choosing to separate and get divorced after just months of marriage. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, I just want to exhort you that part of what God wants you to have marked in your marriage is a commitment to one another. But notice also in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, it talks about not just a leaving, a cleaving, but it talks about a weaving. What this means is, is that the husband and wife are so to intertwine their lives that they become one. There's to be a leaving, a cleaving, and then there's to be a weaving to become one. Do you notice in Genesis chapter 2, our verse there, that it says that they were both naked and not ashamed? This speaks of openness. This speaks of oneness. This speaks of unity. You know, we all live after Genesis chapter 3, where sin entered the world. And I can be naked in front of my wife and not be ashamed. If I can do that, and if you can do that, after Genesis chapter 3, after sin has entered the world, then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, when it says that Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed, it means more than that. It's more than talking about physical nakedness. The thrust of the passage is that God's intention for the, the, the foundation of society, the, the, the nuclear family, God's design for marriage is that there's to be this leaving, this cleaving, and this weaving, that they're, they're one there's unity in Christ. That helps explain why it is so critical for those of you that are not married, that if you intend to marry, that you determine, I'm only going to marry a growing Christian because you'll not be able to have this oneness that the scripture intends unless they're united in Christ. Well, doing these three things leads to happiness in family relationships, Doing the failure to do these leads to heartache in family relationships. Think about it. Wouldn't we all want to be in a relationship where we're viewed as a priority? There's a leaving where somebody we know is committed to us, even though they know more than anybody else our weaknesses, our failures, and, and, but they keep loving us and are committed to us and they're committed to becoming one with us. 
God created marriage to be a monogamous, heterosexual, and complete union of the two individuals. Jesus in Mark 10, verses 7 to 9, added that it's also to be permanent. This was the foundation on which society was to be built. God intended the marriage of men and women to be conceiving and raising children to be the foundation of each society, and we must cling to this truth and resist all attempts to alter, redefine, or eliminate the nuclear family. Well, that's the family formed. Let's turn our attention now to the family deformed. And if your Bibles are open, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 1 to 19. Now, this is an extended passage, but this passage helps understand, should help you understand why there is conflict and stress in your marriage and why you do some of the things that you do. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, God has said, or indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may be, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? By the way, let me just pause and say, anytime God asks a question, you know he's not looking for information. The question was not for his benefit. The question was for the benefit of the person being addressed. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave us to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the, uh, all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field, on your belly shall you go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You sh he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have not eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, from it for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, what I have just read is what is called the fall. This is when Adam ate the forbidden fruit and everything everything changed. The prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was ultimately a test of obedience to the revealed will of God. It was certainly not a matter of proper diet. When we say that this is the call, every, the, excuse me, the fall, because they chose to disobey God, everything changed. Sin had now entered into God's perfect world. Mankind had fallen. The perfect family was changed. Their sin was more than eating the forbidden fruit. It was disobeying the revealed word of God, believing the lie of Satan and placing their own wills above God's will. And those same things will destroy your family relationships. You know, in Genesis, it says, Genesis chapter one, it says, when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Well, now in Genesis chapter five, verse three, the Bible says that Adam lived 130 years and he became the father of a son. Listen to this. Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. So Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Since Adam and Eve, all of us have been created in the image of our forefathers. And sin has begot sin. Sinner has raised a sinner. So beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the Old Testament is the story of families all struggling with the impact of sin. Think about it. In Genesis 2, they had a commitment to the relationship. There was a priority in the relationship, a commitment to one another, and a weaving to become one. All three of those areas are attacked and destroyed by sin. Adam and Eve's son murdered his brother. Lot's daughters committed incest with their father and gave birth to Moab and Ammon, enemies of Israel for centuries. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, is at the root of the Arab-Israeli conflict today. Isaac's son, Esau, was a pagan degenerate. Jacob's 10 sons were a sorry lot. They even sold one of their brothers into slavery. Aaron's sons were killed by God for offering strange fire on the altar. Eli's sons were killed by God for treating the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. Samuel's sons were rejected by the nation for any leadership role. 
King David's house, the greatest king in Israel's history, was a complete mess. Amnon raped his sister. Absalom, a brother, sought revenge and killed him for doing it. Then Absalom later deposed his father as king. And then another brother, Adonijah, tried to steal the crown from Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was an entitled, spoiled brat who tried to divide the nation. And then there's godly King Hezekiah, a bright light in Israel's history, who took bold steps in Judah to rid the land of idolatry. But he had a son, Manasseh, who reversed all those reforms and did much worse, and who later became known as the worst king in Israel's history. One of the things he did, he was known for killing innocent people. 2 Kings 21, 16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. What happened? How could things go so quickly from being perfect? The ideal family relationship to hundreds of years of discord and division. I think Jeremiah chapter 2.13 captured what happened, what happened in the Old Testament, what tends to happen with us. Listen to Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the tendency of each of our flesh when it comes to family relationships. To forsake God and, and his ways and his words and try to find something else that we think will satisfy us. What he called a cistern, a broken cistern though, that will hold no water. And if you'll think about it, what leads to the heartache that we experience in our families today are somebody forsaking what the Bible says about leaving and the priority of the husband-wife relationship, that core foundation of society, and finding some reason to forsake what God has said and to turn to something else that's the broken cistern of job or money or success or <clears throat> whatever. And we find reasons, we, excuses to, to not cleave. And we turn from what God has said. And we turn to something else that we think will satisfy. Another man, another woman, freedom, whatever. But it's an empty cistern that will not satisfy. And instead of weaving and seeking to weave our lives together to become one, to be open and honest with each other, we build up walls of resistance and we may stay married, but it's the cold war at our house. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to you for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the family deformed. Well, there's good news. That's the, what I'm calling the family reformed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right in the chapter that talks about Adam and Eve sinning, we have the first initial promise of a redeemer. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 records this. God says, as he's pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, an individual from among the woman's seed, namely Christ, will deal a death blow to Satan's head, which Christ did at the cross, while Satan would bruise Christ's heel, causing him to suffer. Well, the significance of all that we've been talking about from the Old Testament is captured for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin... So death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. What the scriptures are teaching is, is that since the time of Adam, sinner has begotten sinner, and all of us come into the world sinners by nature, and it doesn't take very long after we're born till we start showing we're sinners by choice. What this means is that all of us come into the world, we're just bent towards sinful thinking, sinful motives, sinful behavior. No parent has to teach a child how to lie, cheat, or steal. I mean, it's just in them because it was in their parents. The good news is that just as the sin entered the, the world by one man, so by one man we can be born again. We desperately need new hearts for we are unable on our own to soften our hard hearts. A change of heart toward God requires a supernatural transformation Jesus called it being born again. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse, verse 8 has this wonderful truth. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus Christ came and the purpose of Christ's coming was to model for us what God was like. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in every thought, action, and motive. And by dying on the cross, he was able to pay the penalty for the sin that you and I have committed and others have committed. He, he was our penal substitute. And by dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And through his resurrection, it was demonstrated that what he had done <clears throat> satisfied the righteous anger of a holy God and made it possible for God to show mercy to us righteously. Well, the significance of this is, if you will repent and trust Christ as your Savior, <clears throat> as many of you have done, then you will have a new heart and God will give you the desire to be growing and changing. Let me show you my favorite passage that, that illustrates this. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, Ephesians 4. Verse 22. Ephesians 4, 22. Says <clears throat> that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I draw your attention, particularly to verse 22, excuse me, verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The term the spirit of your mind is referring to that tendency that we have. We're just 
the spirit of the mind is the bent of the mind. And the Bible teaches that by God's grace, through salvation, through progressive sanctification, growing and changing, by God's grace, as we hear the word preached, as we read, study, meditate on the scripture, the spirit of our heart, the spirit of our minds can be changed so that we can come to a point where the things that we now love, we used to hate, the things that we now hate, we used to love. We can be really changed by the spirit in the spirit of our mind. At the core of our being, we can be absolutely changed. That's why it's so important for you in this new year to make it an important, diligent matter to read your Bible regularly. I'd encourage you to meditate on key scriptures and to memorize key scriptures. Uh, The psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Hide God's word in your heart. I'd encourage you to to be diligent in attending services, particularly this month on the matter of the family, asking God to renew your heart. And then as you hear the word of God taught and applied in the particular topics that are coming, that you would seek to obey those. Well, let's uh, head toward the finish line with this. What then would we say is a Christian family? A Christian family is a group of sinners related to each other through marriage, birth, or adoption who are born again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to live lives that please God by hearing and obeying his word. There are no perfect families today since Genesis 3, but there are growing families spiritually where we are growing and are leaving and are cleaving and are weaving and are becoming one. And it is a reflection of Jesus Christ doing a work in each of our hearts. So in closing, I would encourage those of you who are not yet Christians to seriously consider the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're new to Christianity or you're uncertain about Christianity, I would urge you to spend time reading in the Gospel of John. It starts before Jesus Christ comes to earth and it ends when he goes back to heaven. And note particularly what Jesus Christ said about himself and notice the kind of things he did and notice the word believe as it shows up in the Gospel of John. For those of you that are Christians, I would call you to be open and honest areas of your own life where you need to be changing and growing. And as God convicts you of sin to repent of that and ask God to help you as an individual member of your family to be growing this year for his honor and for his glory.